Good evening, Two Cities Church. I hope everyone is doing well. It is so good to be here. As the video, as you heard on the video, my name is Logan. And a little update since this was filmed, that was in the fall. We have now been in New York City for five months. Um, We have now had our fourth baby. That, that reaction is the reaction I always get. You know, people around the city, they're like, one, two, three, four? Are those all your kids? We're like, no, we just like to pick up extra kids when we go to the grocery store. But things are going great, and I just want to say thank you to you. You guys have been phenomenal partners in ministry. And I, I say that so sincerely. We love this church. We love being able to lock arms with you in mission. And I just want to tell you a brief story. In December, this is after you guys have already been very generous to support us. In December, I get a call from Pastor Kyle. I remember I was, on a, I was sitting on uh, the runway on a plane, and he calls me. I pick up the phone, and he says, um, Logan, we just took up this offering. We called it the Hold the Rope Offering. And I know that you guys have been wanting to start your kids' ministry there in the city. And we want to give you another gift to help you start your kids' ministry. And I want to tell you this. This very morning, we had our training to train our volunteers to start our new kids' ministry. So I want to thank you. And I also want to say this. You guys have an amazing staff team. I didn't say this in the previous services, but now I've interacted with all your staff team, and I can say this so confidently, you have an amazing staff team. You have amazing pastors, and I know that you guys are so thankful for them, but I just want to acknowledge that. I know you know that, but as a guest, I can come in and just say that. Man, you guys are so blessed to have the people that you have. This evening, I want to talk about the church's mission. I remember one of my first weekends preaching in New York City, I had an older gentleman walk up to me. He was probably about 60 years old. He walked with a cane, and he had a really thick New York City accent. You guys can imagine that in your head. He kind of walks up to me really slowly, and he said, Pastor Logan, sometimes I imagine Jesus coming back and looking at his church and saying, this is not at all what I had in mind. And that statement has really stuck with me. What would it look like? What what would that church look like that Jesus imagined when he first started the church 2,000 years ago? What is the church supposed to look like? What is its mission? What is our purpose as followers of Jesus? And I think this question is so important for us today because if you looked at our culture as a whole, people who don't follow Jesus, people you work with, people that are in your family or on your block, what would be their picture of the church's mission? Or what would be their picture of the church at all? They might say, well, you know, I like Jesus, but I really don't so much like the church. They'd probably relate to that quote that's so often attributed to Gandhi. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. So here's the question. Why is the approval rating of Jesus so high and the approval rating of the church so low? So that's people outside the church. But what about us inside the church? What about Christians that we interact with on a daily basis? What would they say about the purpose and the mission of the church? What would they say about their role? I think as I've talked to people, that people would often say, we're bored. 
We know that there's something bigger and more important that we're supposed to be giving our lives to, but we struggle to know what that is. We struggle to know what our role is in that mission. So in the meantime, we come to church and we sit quietly, we take notes during the sermon, we give some money occasionally, and we try to leave this place and behave as best as we can like we think Christians should. And all the time we wonder, is there anything more to the whole deal than this? So what kind of church did Jesus have in mind? Thankfully, he told us. So if you have your Bibles, you can go to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. This is the very first time in the Bible, in the New Testament, where the word church is used. And Jesus starts talking about the church and the purpose and the mission that he has for it. And I know that you guys have been studying the book of 1 Peter. So um, the disciple Peter, this is pre-apostle Peter, he is a key character in this chapter. So I hope you can connect some pieces between this story and what you've been studying in 1 Peter. So let's read. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Skip down to verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So we can break down Jesus' teaching on the church and the mission and the purpose of the church from this passage with really five pictures. I think Jesus gives us five pictures to help explain the mission of the church. So here's where we're going this evening. We have a question mark, a rock, a gate, a key, and a cross. All right, we're gonna have a question mark, we have a rock, we have a gate, we have a key, and we have a cross. First, we see in the text a question mark, and we see that a right view of Jesus leads to a right view of mission. You see, the church's mission starts with a question mark, a really big question mark. Let's look at verses 13 through 18. Because if we get the answer to these questions wrong, there's actually absolutely no way we get our mission right. Because who we say that Jesus is will determine everything about the way that we follow him. So we need to notice in verses 13 through 18, the setting. This setting is really important to understanding this whole story. Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. So Caesarea Philippi was a Roman city. It was a pagan city, but it was built within the borders of Israel. 
And one of the things that was really characteristic, one of the things that people knew about Caesarea Philippi was it was built right next to this huge rock face. And on this rock face, the Romans had built temple after temple after temple where they worshiped God after God after God. And one of the most famous of those temples was to Caesar himself. And this is what it was inscribed. The son of God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, Caesar. That sound familiar? So Jesus takes his disciples to this place. He takes them to Caesarea Philippi where all of these gods are worshiped and he asks them a very direct question. Who do you say that I am? And at first, they give popular opinion. They say, well, people say that you're John the Baptist or you're Elijah or you're Jeremiah, which makes sense, right? I mean, Jesus was a very prophetic figure, but in a very Socratic way, Jesus didn't care about popular opinion. He wanted to get them to this question. He was leading them to a more pointed question where he said, okay, here's what all, the, here's what all they think about who Jesus is, but who do you say that I am? And that's a question we all have to wrestle with this evening. Who do you say that I am? Not who do your parents say that Jesus is. Not what is your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your teacher or your grandma, but who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus really? And I know if you're in here this evening and you're wrestling with that question, you're not sure maybe. You're saying, I'm not sure. I haven't made up my mind about who Jesus is. I know that Two Cities Church is a safe place for you. I know it's a safe place for you to ask questions, to have dialogue. It's a safe place to explore who Jesus is. But I want you to know that while you're in this process of searching out and answering this question, you are joined by thousands and thousands of people throughout history because this is a question that every Christian at some point has had to wrestle with. Verse 16, Peter speaks up. Our boy Peter that you've been studying, he speaks up and he is the representative of the entire group. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Through divine revelation, Peter gets it right. And this brief, small phrase that Peter gives us is packed with meaning. The word Christ comes from the Old Testament term, term Messiah, which meant anointed one. It was understood as the deliverer who would come and save God's people. It was understood to be the son of David who would restore the nation of Israel to their former glory and independence. This was not just a normal prophet. This was the person through whom God was going to work in human history all of his purposes out. This was the person through whom God was going to change the world. And the church that Jesus envisions right here in Matthew 16 has him, Jesus, as the center, that everything would revolve around him. That's why this question is so important. How many of you guys remember the TV show One Tree Hill? How many of you guys were big fans of One Tree Hill? Oh, don't lie. You guys loved it. I said this guy's name wrong earlier. Chad Michael Murray. You guys remember Chad Michael Murray? He was like the heartthrob of whatever time period that was. He was a big deal. He was the one that everybody had their, you know, 
You know, girls had posters of him on their wall. But when I was about 17 years old, I decided it would be a good idea, me and some buddies, we were going to go be extras on the show One Tree Hill because they filmed it in North Carolina. So we said, okay, we're going to jump, jump in the car. We're going to go be extras on One Tree Hill. And you guys know this, but the point of being an extra really is that you are not seen. You're not even the background. You have the stars. Then you have the background people who are actually real actors too. And then behind those people, you have the extras. And they don't want you to be seen. You're, you are there to fill space. So this is what happens. They put you in a big tent and they give you numbers. And they walk around the room every now and then and say, one, two, three, four, five. And our number got called. And so me and my friend, we get up into the scene and... Like I said, we weren't meant to be seen, but my roommate at the time, he decided it would be a really great idea if he could be on TV, and he was determined that he was going to be on TV, and here's the scene that they gave us. It was a bar scene, which I found to be, in hindsight, kind of weird, because they're supposed to be like 16 years old. Nevertheless, though, they were at the bar, and they had us, the extras, way back here, where you could not be seen, but my friend was determined he was going to be on TV. So he kind of pulled this move. Like every couple seconds, he's like, mm-hmm. He stood there for a second, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh-huh. Before he, he was like right behind Chad Michael Murray. It was Chad's face and then my friend's face, grinning ear to ear, this goofy looking, you know, like, Mom, I'm, I'm on TV. And so we, they filmed the scene, and he thought he was the man. He's like, Logan, I'm going to be on TV. I'm going to be all over that scene. And I'll tell you how much we cared. We didn't even watch the episode. Ten years later, though, I saw that One Tree Hill was on Netflix. So I went and I found the episode. And there for one brief, not even a second, you had to pause it to see it, was my friend's face right beside Chad Michael Murray. I mean, he had his one moment of fame. And the reason I tell this story is because I often think about it when I think about Jesus being the center. Because we all have the ability to leverage our lives and our gifts for something bigger, something greater than ourselves, something lasting, something meaningful. But at the end of the day, it's never going to be about us. We're never going to be the star of the show we're always going to be the background. And we, at times, can try to weasel our way into the picture, like my friend did. And we might have our one second of glory, and everybody will applaud us and say, way to go, you did it, you're so great, you're awesome. But at the end of the day, that second is gone. And it's going to be about Jesus. But on the flip side, if we begin to leverage our lives to make Jesus great, we get to join in a story that is lasting. Our, our purpose and our mission goes from being about this big in our own little world to being cosmic. And all of a sudden, our little story, our little world just gets exploded with meaning and purpose and vision. That's why the question mark is first. We have to figure out who Je Jesus is to us. Is he the center? Is he the Messiah? Is he the son of the living God? Because if he is, that changes everything about our purpose. Second, we have a rock. So we have a question mark. Then Jesus moves on to the rock. And we see that the foundation of the church's mission is the people of God 
proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Look at verse 18 with me. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus says this whole thing is built on a foundation. The people of God proclaiming the gospel of Christ, and on this foundation I put my ecclesia. That's the Greek word here. It means community. On this rock I place my community. But we have to stop here for one second. We have to stop because this is the most debated verse in church history, so I don't think it's fair for me just to you know, glaze right by it. More ink has been spilled trying to figure out this one verse than any other verse in the entire Bible. And here's kind of the debate. The debate hinges around what actually is the rock. There's one group that says, well, Peter was the rock. So it's, it's a man. It's a leader. And then there's another group that says, no, 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 no. Peter is not the rock. Peter's message, the gospel, is the rock. And there's actually now a third group. And they say, well, no, no, no. It's not Peter. It's not Peter's message. When Jesus is talking about the rock, he's literally talking about the rock that they're looking at in Caesarea Philippi. And what Jesus is saying is in places like this, in hard places where a myriad of gods are worshipped, I'm planting my church even there. So which is it? Which is right. I want to suggest this evening that there is, they're all right in one sense. And here, here's what I think. I think that what Jesus is saying here is not that it's about a person or about a message or about a place, but it's all three. And how could you ever separate them? Because we have a message and that message is always delivered by a messenger, and that messenger necessarily delivers a message in a place. So what Jesus is saying here for us, I think, is this. His foundation for mission is he's going to put a people, a community. He's going to plop them in a place, and he is going to give them a message. And that's powerful for the church. It's no accident that God puts you at Two Cities Church. And it's no accident that God put Two Cities Church in Winston-Salem. He's saying, you are my people, and I've given you a message for a specific place. But we know that you're in Winston for the world. It doesn't stop there. From this place, you're going to take this message to place after place after place, developing community after community after community. And I need to stop just for a minute because we need to ask the question, okay, if it's a people delivering a message in a place, what is that message? It's the most amazing message imaginable. And here's what's beautiful. We don't have to be like, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's about Jesus and Jesus died on the cross for my sins and you should believe. That's not our message. It's the most beautiful, powerful message in all of human history. And we know what Peter didn't know. We see the whole story. This Jesus would go on to live a completely perfect life. He would die in our place on the cross for our sin, and then he would rise from the dead, empowering us to follow him and live out the mission that he's called us to. And here's the message. You could summarize it in one word, grace. And this is a beautiful message that God has given his people. Do you feel like no one loves you? God loves you. That's the message. 
Do you feel ignored? Do you feel overlooked? Well, God pursues you with his love. That's the message. Do you struggle with guilt from past sin? God offers complete forgiveness. Are you broken? Jesus has come to restore you. And if that's not enough, oh, by the way, one day God is going to make all things new. The whole broken creation will be restored. So the message that we have is amazing and beautiful and powerful, and he's given it to us, his people, and he's plopped us in a place, me in Brooklyn, you in Winston-Salem, but we have a job to do. Third, not only do we have a rock, not only do we have a question mark, we have a gate. And what the gate tells us is that the aim of the church's mission is outward, and it cannot be stopped. Verse 18, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. For years, I misunderstood this verse. I always understood this verse uh, to be like, okay, I have all these pressures against me. I feel like I got satanic attack all over the place coming at me, but don't worry, the gates of hell will not prevail against me. That's how I understood this verse. I kind of pictured it like Lord of the Rings. You know that scene where they all kind of um, hole up in the castle and they make one last stand against the orcs and they're like, you know, fortify the walls. They will not come in. That's how I pictured this verse. But if we look closely, we see that's not what the verse is actually about at all. This verse assumes that we are the ones charging the gates of hell, that we are the ones advancing the mission of Christ. And as we move forward, it's saying, there's no gate of hell or Satan or death that will be able to stop you. Keep going as the people of God faithfully sharing the message of Christ. He promises that the mission would advance further and further and further into enemy territory. And guess what? There's no gate that will stop you. The church's mission is unstoppable as it advances the very powers of death and hell and Satan will not block it. And I love the way an old theologian and pastor named J.C. Ryle puts it. This is a long quote, so stay with me, but I think it's worth us looking at together. He says this, Nothing can altogether overthrow or destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, burned. But the true church is never altogether extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The Pharaohs, the Herods, the Neros, the Bloody Marys have labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands and then pass away and go to their place. The true church outlives them all and sees them buried each in his turn. It's an anvil that has broken many a hammer in this world and will break many a hammer still. It's a bush which is often burning and yet is not consumed. As a part of Christ's church, do you realize that you are part of a global movement that cannot and will not be stopped. We have a gate. Fourth, not only do we have a gate, we have keys. And the keys show us that the authority of the church's mission comes from Christ himself. 
Look at verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. The disciples at this point, they had to be thoroughly confused. Imagine this. Peter, he just like had his best moment of his entire life. He got the answer right to Jesus' question. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then all of a sudden, Jesus starts talking about handing out keys. You see, Jesus gave real authority to his church. We got to think of the church like an embassy. An embassy represents a nation on foreign soil. They speak the language of another kingdom. They embody the values of another kingdom. And Jesus was saying, I'm giving you authority as my embassy here on the earth. And there's so much we could say about this little verse. We could talk about church discipline. We could church talk about binding and loosing. What does that mean? But I want to make one very simple point about the keys, which I think is pretty amazing to think about. My son was asking me about this verse. Every time I preach, I try to um, talk to my son about it before I do it, because I feel like if he can't understand it, then I'm it's too complicated. I need to like, clarify what I'm trying to say. And when I got to this point about the keys, he was confused. Hey, Dad, I, I mean, I, gate, I'm with you, rock, I got it. But what's the deal with these keys? And I summarize it this way. Jesus gives his followers the keys to his house, and we get to open the door and invite people in for dinner. Imagine this. Imagine this. Imagine you had an incredibly rich uncle, like not just wealthy, but off the charts wealthy. And imagine your uncle owned a mansion at the Hamptons. He's got a mansion at the Hamptons. And he says, listen, Jerry, love you, man. Really appreciate you. Here are the keys to my mansion. Use it anytime you want. It's practically yours. You got it. How awesome would that be? That'd be amazing. But then imagine he says, and Jerry, by the way, take these keys, start making copies, and start handing them out to your coworkers, your uh, neighbors, and your friends. That'd be pretty awesome. And Jerry, by the way, I don't just own this mansion. I own this entire block. All these mansions are mine. And by the way, I want you to take the keys to all these other mansions, and I want you to start handing them out, and I want you to start inviting people in. And Jerry, by the way, I don't just own this block. I own all the blocks on this beach. This whole beach is mine. And by the way, it's mine. Now it's yours. You have the keys. You open the doors. Swing them open. Start inviting people in. How amazing would that be? What Christ offers us, the invitation that he gives us, is so far beyond that, it's unimaginable. Here's the very kingdom of heaven. Jesus, first time he mentions the church in the entire Bible. Here's the church, here are the keys. You see, the Pharisees in Jesus' time, they thought they had the keys, and they thought they had the keys in order to keep people out. Jesus gives the keys to his disciples to let people in. Think about this, a first century Jew would have prayed this prayer, a male Jew, would have prayed this prayer every single day. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. 
Then Jesus comes on the scene and he turns everything upside down. And we look at the book of Acts and I think this is no accident. What are some of the first converts we see in the book of Acts? We have the Ethiopian eunuch, Gentile. We have the girl who had a spirit of divination, a slave. And we have Lydia, a woman. And it's as if Jesus is saying, you know all those people that you have all your life tried to get away from and keep out? Guess what? I have just given them the keys and they are now family. They're family in the new community, the new ecclesia, the new church that I am building. Swing the doors wide open and let them in because they are family. And as a church, we have the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Who has God called you to swing the door wide open for? Who at your work? Who on your block? Who in your family is God saying, go swing the door wide open, invite them in? Lastly, we have a cross, the final picture that Jesus gives us. And we see what the posture of the church should be. So yeah, we got the foundation, the people, the message, the place, we got the gates, we got all that, but what's our posture in all of this? How do we go about this mission? The church's mission is one of service and sacrifice. Verse 24, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake We'll find it. Very simply, Jesus says to follow him means that we embrace a posture of sacrifice and service in everything that we do. And he gives these crazy upside down values. Hey, if you want to find life, you want true and meaningful life. Yes, we all want that. Jesus said, hey, it's it's actually not what you think it is. It's not actually getting all you can, accumulating stuff, amassing comfort, and putting yourself at the center. It's actually the opposite. When you start to give yourself away in service and sacrifice, and you die to yourself, you actually start living the way that I've called you to live, and you find joy and peace and satisfaction, the joy that you've always been looking for. And he says this whole thing is upside down in the kingdom of God. To serve others, what does that mean? It means constantly having a posture of putting another before yourself in your marriage, putting another before yourself in parenting, putting another before yourself at work, putting another before yourself. To sacrifice, what does that look like? Well, it looks like giving up something you love for something you love even more. Jesus, his mission, his glory. So the question, the hard question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we living a life of sacrifice and service? And I was reminded of a story about a guy named William Borden. William Borden graduated from Yale in 1909. He was the heir of the, of the Borden Milk Company. It was one of the largest companies at that time. So he had a whole life lined up for him, a life of power, a life of wealth, a life of privilege, a life most people would dream, would, would die and dream to have. He had it all laid out for him on a silver platter. William Borden, Yale graduate, heir to the Borden Milk Company. But then he came to know Jesus. 
He told his parents he was not going to be taking over the company anymore. But he felt like God was calling him to bring the gospel to the Muslim people of North Africa who had never heard the gospel. So he starts to give away hundreds of thousands of dollars. And after he gives away so much of his money, he decides, you know, what? I think God is actually calling me to uproot my life and go to North Africa. He jumps on a boat. It's an arduous journey. He gets there. Four months later, he contracts spinal meningitis and dies. at the age of 25 years old. Here's a guy with his whole future in front of him. And right before he died, someone came up to him and he basically asked him, what do you think about all these decisions that you made in your life? Surely you think this whole thing was a big mistake, right? I mean, surely this whole thing was a disaster. He simply replied to the man, I have no regrets. On his tombstone, which you can visit today in Cairo, there's a brief description, and it says this. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Is there an explanation for your life apart from faith in Jesus? Could someone look at your life and say, this whole thing makes no sense at all unless Jesus is who he said he was and he rose from the dead. And that's what I want Brooklyn to say about our church. And that's what I want Winston-Salem to say about this church. What would it look like for Winston-Salem to look at Two Cities Church and say, this really makes no sense apart from a radical faith in Jesus? It seems like everyone else in our city is trying to get more and more, to gain more and more money, but the people of Two Cities Church seem to give it away freely. It makes no sense. Most people seem to be trying to gain more and more power, but everywhere I look, it, it seems like the people of Two Cities Church are serving in the places where no one else wants to serve and laying down their power for the good of others. Ah, most churches... They seem to be bent on putting more seats in our auditorium and putting more people in our building. But the people of Two Cities Church just seem to be about sending their people out for the sake of mission. It makes no sense, apart from faith in Christ. This is the type of church that Jesus envisioned. This is what he was laying out for us in Matthew chapter 16. This is what he gave to Peter a church that reflects him. Can you say it makes no sense? It makes no sense until we look at Jesus. Jesus did not come to be served. He came to serve, and he came to give his life as a ransom for many. So we say, where would we get a crazy idea like this? Like Where, where would we get a crazy idea to, to be a church like this? Well, we'd get it from our Savior, who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. That's how Jesus lived. That's how he calls us to live, to serve, and to sacrifice. This is the church that Jesus envisioned for us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace. 
this evening we rest in it. And we acknowledge how great and how awesome you are. Father, we acknowledge, we acknowledge this evening we need you. We need your power. When we think about purpose and we think about mission, it's not our own strength, but it is Christ living through us. So God, I pray that we'd be a church that knows that two cities would be a church that knows the mission is unstoppable. There's no gate of hell that will stop them. They'll be a church that know that they're standing on a rock, which is a foundation of a people and a message in a place. God, they would know what their posture should be, one of service and one of sacrifice. And they would know what their task is, to swing the doors of the kingdom of heaven wide open and start inviting people in. So Father, this evening, would you impress upon our hearts God, where have you called us to serve? Where have you called us to sacrifice? Where have you called us to give? Where have you called us to share? Where have you called us to invite? God, even now in this moment, would you impress upon us what it is you're calling us to do here in this city? God, I want to pray for Two Cities Church, and I want to pray for fruit, that this next season of ministry would be the most fruitful season in its history. They would see more people come to know Christ. They would see more community groups launched. They would see you do more than they could possibly dream or imagine at this moment. And would you do it, God, through the people sitting in this room right now? Would they know the mission is not for someone else? It's not for the leaders. It's not for the varsity team. It's for everyone. So Holy Spirit, would you come in this moment and would you speak? We pray in Jesus' name.